0: Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I am thankful that you are here, whatever the circumstances were that got you up and here this morning. I am so glad uh, to be with you and to have the opportunity for a few minutes to set aside aside a few minutes here to study God's Word together. Um, This is uh, a significant part of our week um, to be able to draw ourselves aside, to put our screens down, Um, to put our work in the background and to be able to direct our focus and our attention and hopefully our affection to God through his word in the the gospel of John this morning. So you're already open there to John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. uh, I'm a reader. I think most of you would probably know that and love to read any opportunity I get. And I recently read a book, um, a rather nerdy book, I will say, And I won't tell you what it was about, but I will tell you that it had an entire chapter devoted to explaining the craft of making pipe organs. It was delightful. (laughs) It may shock you and may surprise you, but I love a well-played pipe organ. There is not much better. Our church in California had a rather large pipe organ and had a guy who could play it, he had a master's degree in organ performance, I did not even know that was a thing, but that's a thing, and he would play it and it was transcendent and wonderful, and so I read this chapter with quite a bit of interest, and most people are probably not aware, but when you talk about a real, genuine pipe organ that is made to fit into a specific church building, there is a guild around the world of organ makers who study this craft and who devote their lives to learning methods that have been used for hundreds of years to construct and make pipe organs and make them work efficiently and correctly with just the right sound. They design the pipes and everything and the goal is to make a musical instrument that is beautiful to look at, and the sound it creates is stunning, and there's not much else like it. And so there are people that give their whole lives to this. And the author of this particular book that I read went to one of the premier organ making shops. I didn't even know those existed, but they do. And he went to one of these shops and spent several weeks there learning about the craft and interviewing and talking to some of the people that worked there. Now, it was interesting because this shop, uh, it's one of the the best in the world, is located in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Um, It's kind of an odd place for an organ shop, but it's only a couple of hours from where we lived and where I grew up in Virginia. I know the town that it's in. Um, We used to play basketball games there when I was in high school, so it's fascinating. And when he went into this shop, there's an entire team of skilled craftsmen and women who work on these organs and devote Tons of time to their specific task that they're doing. Um, one, the 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 building of one pipe organ can take around fourteen thousand man hours of work, and it costs in the neighborhood of two million dollars to build one. So we're actually going to be installing one here at <laughs> WBC in the next year. Just kidding. But they build these, these magnificent musical instruments, and when he was interviewing him, the, the different people that are working on it, they fully expect that the work that they're doing is going to go into this instrument, and that people will still be using this instrument 400 years from now. I mean, they build it in such a way that the next person who has to work on it and restore it and modify it is going to know what they did and know why they did it, and be able to advance and help the the particular musical instrument. And it's a fascinating uh, guild and and skill and craft to give your life to. Now, for me, I find this interesting because I've always been fascinated by people in any area of life who give themselves to something like this. They devote their lives to a very specific craft or skill, and they grow to a world-class level in it. I love that about sports, I love that about musicians, I love that about craftsmen who can build tables or furniture or whatever it may be. I love it when a human being devotes themselves to something and they go after it with full speed and with all of their attention focused on it. Now I think that's an interesting question to consider when you think about the life of Jesus Christ. What, his human life, what did he give himself to? What was his passion? What was he devoted to? What did everything in his life aim itself toward? Yes, he was born to die on the cross. We know that. We understand that. He was born to die and to rise from the dead. That was a major part of why he came and why he lived. But an even bigger reason for that was his ultimate passion. And I think we see that passion explained to us in the Gospel of John. This is what ultimately brought him to the hour of his death and to his sacrifice on the cross. And it's given to us in John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I mean, this is it. Jesus went to the cross. He lived. He came to earth as a human being, to save us from our sins, but even that was ultimately so that God would be lifted up, he would be exalted, and he would be worshiped by his people. Jesus came to glorify God and to bring about the pure and true and right worship of God by the people he would save. That's that's it. That's his passion. That's what he was going after. Now, in order to do that, in order to come into this world and bring about that true and right worship, some things obviously had to change. And he brought about those changes in a big way. Last week, we saw in the, the miracle or the sign of the water turned into wine, we saw that one of the things that, we, that Jesus taught us through that and one of the things we learned was that he would fulfill the old, he would fill up the old covenant and the old rituals with new meaning, and he would reveal to us their ultimate purpose, and he would bring about change in that. Throughout his life in ministry, he would bring about something new and better. And that sort of transformation and bringing about what is new is going to be the theme of what we're going to see today in John 2, verses 13 to 22. It's very clear, I think, in this passage. And so in this text, we're going to see two changes that Jesus brings that transform worship. This is the ultimate passion in some way of his life. This is why in some ways John begins here and why he highlights this event in the life of Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. His goal is to transform worship and bring glory to God. And so two changes that Jesus brings that transform worship. And the first one of these is that he is passionate about the purity of true Worship. Look at verse 13 with me, which is where our text begins this morning, right at the beginning there. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, you might be familiar with the Passover as a Jewish festival and as a feast, and this is the first Passover that John mentions in his gospel, but there will be two other times of Passover that he mentions that Jesus attends. Now John, it's interesting, is quite a bit different than the other gospel writers. We typically sort of pair Matthew, Mark, and Luke together as the synoptic gospels. They have a lot of overlap. And then John is kind of an outlier over here. And that you see that in the way that they deal with Passover. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only mention Jesus going to the Passover at the very end of his life. The Passover that happened right before and while he was going to the cross. John begins the ministry of Jesus with him going to a Passover. And then there are at least two others, maybe even three, sprinkled in throughout the ministry of Jesus. And so he wants to highlight this. Now, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to go to the Passover because this was a feast of the Jews. It was normal for them to attend, and all Jewish males were expected to come to Passover and to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. They were expected to go so that they could worship God and so that they could offer sacrifices to God, so that they could pay their temple tax. I mean, This was required. This was expected in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 16. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose, this is before Israel goes into the promised land, so Jerusalem was not the place of the temple yet, but he says, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt." so this was expected of Jewish men to go to Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate this. Now, in the Gospel of John, this is the first major Jewish festival or feast or celebration that he mentions, but it's not going to be the last. If you were to go back this week, I would encourage you to read John 5 through 10. Over and over again, Jesus attends these different feasts and festivals and religious celebrations That the Jews have and over and over again he invests them with new meaning and he shows how that they point to him and find their ultimate purpose and fulfillment in him the Passover is no different John highlights Jesus going to this in some ways because he wants us to understand Jesus as the reason that Passover even exists he is the final Passover. He is the Passover lamb. You see this in, in the Apostle Paul. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So notice when Jesus goes, what he does when he gets there. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So where does Jesus go when he gets to Passover and to Jerusalem? He goes to the temple. Now, the temple, of course, you probably realize was the center of Israelite and Jewish worship. And there is a bit of a history here that I want to go through real quickly. The temple had replaced the tabernacle. So Israel, God gives them the instructions in the book of Exodus, they're in the wilderness to build this tabernacle that he will dwell in, and they will be able to offer sacrifices to him in the courtyard of this. They'll sprinkle the blood on the, holy, uh, the altar and the, the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies, and God's presence will dwell there. So the tabernacle begins in Exodus, and they take the tabernacle with them on their journeys through the wilderness. They end up in the promised land, and the tabernacle is put up there, and then David, who we'll talk about in a few minutes, wants to build God a permanent place to live, a house for him in Jerusalem. Solomon ends up building that. Solomon's temple was glorious, but Solomon's temple was destroyed when Israel was sent into exile because of the people's idolatry. But then some of the people come back to the land after their exile, and in the book of Ezra, which you can find in the Old Testament, they rebuild the temple. That temple was in Jerusalem, built right where Solomon's temple was, most likely. And here they have a sort of rebuilt, refurnished version of that temple that was built on the same spot, and this one was built by Herod. And so this is the temple that was built by Herod that Jesus comes to. Now, I want you to understand here how significant it is that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, that he goes to Jerusalem the temple, and that he goes at the beginning of his ministry. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 6 of John, here we see John the Baptist who was sent as a forerunner of Jesus. And what does it say? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And I, if you remember, when we went through that passage, I told you this was probably an allusion to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, where God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And so John the Baptist is this messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before God, the Messiah, shows up. But I want you to see in Malachi 3.1 what happens after the messenger comes. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so when the messenger shows up and begins proclaiming the coming of Messiah, what's going to happen? The Messiah is going to show up and then he's going to come to the temple, which happens here. And what is he going to do when he comes to the temple? Well, let's look further in Malachi. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He's going to come to the temple in judgment. Why? Look at that last line. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He's going to come to the temple and purify it and judge what is happening there in order to bring about right worship, to purify worship. So in fulfillment of this verse and this passage in Malachi, Jesus shows up to the temple and finds it filled with animals and money changers. What's going on here? Why is this the way it is in verse 14? This seems crazy. Well, there's a reasonable explanation for this, even if it is not appropriate to have all of these animals and money changers in the temple. People, the Jewish men, were to come to Jerusalem, they were to offer sacrifices, and it would be very difficult for them to bring their animals with them from all over Israel. And so they would show up to Jerusalem, fully expecting to purchase an animal for sacrifice when they got there. In addition, they're coming from all over the known world in some ways to get there. They had various currencies that they used in their hometowns. And when they got to Jerusalem, they had to pay a temple tax in a specific currency. And so they would have to change their money there to be able to pay that tax. And so having animals to buy for sacrifices and the opportunity to be able to pay the tax was good. It wasn't a bad thing. But the problem is the location of these animals, and of the money changers. Originally, they had worked and they had sold the animals and changed money across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. But at some point, the whole operation had moved over into the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple. And they had consistently, apparently, set up shop there. And as they did that, it seems like they had permission from the Jewish authorities to do this. This was totally fine with them. It's not fine with Jesus. Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers. I just laugh every time I visualize that happening, the money getting just dumped out on the ground, and overturned their tables. Now, the whip here is most likely not to whip human beings. It's most likely to drive out the larger animals from the temple uh, outer court here. All right. This is what Jesus is doing here is to show that this is not what the temple is for. The place where God is supposed to meet with human beings and they're to worship him and offer sacrifices to him is not to be. Filled with animals and filled with commerce and money changers. Look at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, of prayer, of consecration to God, of sacrifice, not a place of commerce. And so Jesus takes this action to show what it was supposed to be. Now, notice what this action causes the disciples to think and to ponder and to remember, maybe later on. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, they don't, I don't know when they remembered this. It could have been after his resurrection, which is when they remembered other things, we'll see in a few minutes. It could have been later on. We don't exactly know. But at some point, they thought of a particular Old Testament passage. And when Jesus went into the temple with this much passion for purity of worship and for God's house to be treated correctly and as what it was supposed to be, they thought of an Old Testament text. What Old Testament passage is this? Psalm 69. You probably have a cross-reference there. What's going on in Psalm 69? In Psalm 69, you have a psalm of David, which is significant because he is the key king in the Old Testament and Jesus is the son of David and God made all of these Davidic, we call them Davidic promises and the covenant with David with him. And so it's significant that this psalm is written by David. And in this psalm, David is recounting that he has suffered persecution. Look what he says in verses one and two. I'll put it on the screen. David says this Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Why is David in such trouble? here and reaching out to God. Look at verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Look at verses 6 through 8. Let not, not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. And so David is suffering shame and dishonor from his enemies, from other people. Why? What is it about David that brings about this persecution and this shame and this dishonor? Look at the beginning of verse 9. For, this is the explanation, zeal, passion for your house has consumed me. And this is the part that the disciples remembered when they saw Jesus cleanse the temple. Now, David, if you will remember, was passionate about building a house for God. What happens? He wants to build a house. He takes Jerusalem in 2 Samuel. He secures the city. He establishes his authority and his kingship. And then he wants to build a temple, a house for God. And he was passionate about this. And God said, no, I'm not going to have you do it. I'm going to have your son Solomon do this. He's going to have that honor. But you can see in 2 Samuel 5 and then in this passage as well that David is zealous and passionate about God's worship and God's glory and God's honor. In fact, look what he says in the rest of verse 9 here and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What David is saying is he so identifies with God's purposes and longs for God's glory and for the proper worship of God that he is willing to be maligned for this. He'll do whatever he needs to do to see God honored and glorified, even if that means reproach, even if that means persecution, because he's so passionate about God's glory. Now the disciples here connected this passage to Jesus because Jesus is the true Davidic king and he is zealous for God's glory and for the proper worship of God. One author put it like this, Jesus's cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. And so this first change, Jesus's passion for purity of worship, tells us that things were not right in Israel, right? I mean, you see this, you see Jesus make this action and you recognize things are not going well as far as worship in the nation of Israel. Now, the second change here in verses 18 through 22 tells us that Jesus's passion caused him to come to the earth his passion for God's glory and his action here and to make sure that true worship was possible he was going to change things and bring about circumstances so that human beings could and his people could genuinely and honestly worship him and that change comes about because now the focal point of worship is not a temple in Jerusalem. The focal point of worship happens in and through Jesus Christ. He becomes and provides the pathway to true worship. Things were not right here. And so what does he do? He makes it known that they're not right. He's zealous for God's glory. And then he comes to set them right. And now everything changes with the focal point of worship. Now when you get back to this story here and you think about Jesus going into the temple, making a a whip, driving animals out, speaking to those that sold pigeons and telling them that this isn't the true intent of the temple, of of the courtyard here. You think about Jesus getting the bowls of money and dumping them out on the ground. All that happened here, that would have caused quite a scene, right? Right? I mean, this was a significant action to take. And so, if you're the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, you hear about this, and in some ways, you have every right to go and ask and be concerned about what's going on. Look at verse 18. So, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, it's an interesting question that they ask him here. They don't stop and ask, Are his actions justified? Have we been misusing the temple? Have we perverted the true worship of God? They don't stop and ask that. Instead, they want to know if he has the authority and the right and the power regarding the temple to be able to do something like this. I mean, they, they viewed themselves as the gatekeepers of proper worship in Israel. They wanted to make sure it was carried out correctly according to them. And so they want Jesus to show his credentials for why and how he can do this here. Look how Jesus answers them in verse 19. Jesus answered them, enigmatic to say the least. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they take him quite literally. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you and will you raise it up in three days? Now, obviously here, Jesus is not talking about the physical temple, Herod's temple that is in front of them. That temple will no longer be the place, the only place where God meets with man. It's not going to be the center of worship any longer things will change here the question is what would now serve as the place where humans could come and access God's presence how is it that human beings can come into the presence of their creator and worship him truly how is that going to take place How can a human being seek God and find Him and properly offer to Him the worship that He deserves? Look at verse 21. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. Listen, the temple in Jerusalem was always meant to point to something better. It was always meant to point to something better that would come. And this is why in John 1.14, it says that Jesus tabernacled among us. He came as the meeting place between human beings and God. He took on a human body in order to bring us to God. When God became man, the whole dynamic of worship changed. And so true worship is important, and Jesus points that out in verses 13 to 17 his cleansing of the temple, but in many ways that was an an attack on impure worship and showing that through his judgment something better was coming. Listen to the interaction, some of the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well in John 4. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that when the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And there's a reason that he identifies himself as Messiah here, and there's a reason in John 14 that he tells the disciples that they cannot access the Father except through him. Jesus said to him, I am the way. How do you come to God? How do you have a relationship with God? How does that happen? I am the way. You don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. I am the sacrifice. I am the Passover lamb. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus has made him known. And so throughout this book, Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus is presented as the true temple, the place where humans must come to meet God, to worship God. One author put it like this. The prime purpose of the incarnation in the love of God is to lift us up into a life of communion or participation in the very triune life of God. That's what true worship is. It's being invited as a child of God through his Son into the love relationship between the Father and the Son to experience that relationship by the Spirit. That is what Jesus offers We come through him. He is the pathway to genuine worship as God designed it. He is the access point. Listen, in our world today, there are two broad approaches to worship. There always have been these two broad approaches to worship. There's an approach that is the most common approach in all world religions and oftentimes in Christianity as well, that sees worship as an act of giving, of prayer, of bowing down, of listening to teaching or preaching. All the other things that people associate with religion, those are things that we do and are offered to deity as a way to placate deity, to appease him, even to honor that deity, to approach God. Most people think of worship in that way. I've been to Nepal and to a Hindu temple in Nepal and sat outside in the courtyard and watched people approach that temple. It's massive. And they come there to worship their plethora and their pantheon of gods. And what they do when they come to that temple is they spin these prayer wheels and they offer something to their Hindu God. They do some act. They offer some money, some food, something. They put a dot on their head to show the God that they are serious about worshiping Him. And they do this in order to receive something from the God or to placate the God or even to honor their God. The point here is that almost all human worship is built upon you as the worshiper acting and approaching deity you are trying to access God directly or through some gift that you offer very often as Christians we can turn our worship into this as well we do something or need to do something in order to approach God directly true Christian worship and this is the other broad approach to worship true Christian worship is quite different Christian worship is not something you offer to God directly or an act you perform before God. Here's what it is. Christian worship is therefore our participation through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father in His vicarious life of worship and intercession. Christian worship is participation. It's joining into a relationship and being invited into a relationship Really, that you have no business being in, And you are invited into the life and love of the Father for the Son and vice versa. And this is why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why faith is so important. We believe in him and are united to him. You and I, when we worship God, are not acting on our own in Christian worship. We are joining something that is already happening. We're joining a loving communion and a relationship that has always existed, and we have been invited into this relationship by grace. The same author said this. The real agent in worship in a New Testament understanding is Jesus Christ, who leads us in our praises and prayers, the one true minister of the sanctuary. He is the high priest, by his one offering of himself for us on the cross now leads us into the holy of holies, the holy presence of the Father in holy communion. So what does this mean for you? For your worship of God, for your relationship with God, for your approach to deity, to the creator God of the universe. It means that you must always come through and because of Jesus Christ. And it means gloriously enough that you and I don't come based on our own merit and standing. There's not enough that we can do to earn access to God, to placate Him and come to Him on our own, to offer to Him on our own. So this means you can relax. And you don't have to impress God. You and I come through grace, based on His unmerited, unearned favor given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what does that mean for your prayer life this week? When you're trying to pray and you doze off there praying and you get frustrated with yourself and you can't seem to pray enough. When you pray, you are not starting something fresh, and initiating something with God on your own and based on your own ability to say the right things or feel the right way. When you come to God in prayer, you are participating in something that's already happening, in a loving communion and relationship and adoration between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And as you are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and trust in him, you're invited into that relationship and you are opening your mouth and your mind in prayer and just joining in and offering the same adoration and praise that has already been going on forever. When you sing in a couple minutes, when you and I come in on Sunday morning and you're just not feeling it, as sometimes I am just not feeling it, You don't have to conjure up emotions and you don't have to figure it out. Just know that you are joining a loving relationship. You are glorifying the Father and the Son through the Spirit as has already been done. And you have been invited in. And Jesus is the pathway to genuine worship. And that is what it means in verse 21 when Jesus says that he, speaking of the temple, was speaking about the temple of his body. His sacrifice on the cross is fully sufficient to invite us into this relationship. He is the access point. He is the focal point now of all true worship and all ways that human beings can relate to God. And how do the disciples respond? Look at this in verse 22. When therefore, it took them a while, <laughs> that's okay, God is very patient with us. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and what happened, and they believed. Believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. After the resurrection, they put the pieces together and they believed, and this is where it starts each time that you approach the Father. You approach through the Son and you approach by faith. Not because you've been a good boy or girl this week not cuz you read your bible every time but you approach because jesus has already made the way possible and you come through him and now you're just a participant the great high priest has given us access in to the temple the true temple and so you come as a participant and not as a solo actor and that is a glorious and life-changing reality and that is what jesus brought through his incarnation and through his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's what we have access to by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you have given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for opening up the pathway for human beings to once again do what we were made to do. To know you, to love you, to commune with you and to adore and worship you. We were put together and designed to be creatures that worship. And that's why so often we worship other things. We are tempted to give our affection and our joy and our adoration to creatures and earthly things. And I pray that even this morning, you would help us to direct our attention to you, Lord Jesus. You are the true agent in our worship and we are participating in and through you. So even now as we sing, lift our hearts up to you, help our faith to be built up and solidified in your work and your person. It's in Christ's name we pray.